Wisconsin's healthcare system is ranked first in the nation for quality. But Obamacare premiums have... If seniors had to pay another $6,400 a year for health care, how would they manage? Eat less? Skip prescription drugs? Nancy Pelosi and Washington liberals gave us Obamacare. Skyrocketing prices, $800 billion in Medicare. We all know our health care system is broken, and Congress could help fix it. But John Culberson is taking... Imagine burning $3.8 million every day. Well, Tennessee's been doing that for years. Right now, our tax dollars go to Washington to help other states pay for health care. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was a sampling of the ads running ahead of the November 6th midterm election. And you may have noticed, healthcare is playing an outsized role. Whether Democrats running on their promises to protect patients, or Republicans trying to defend their stance to repeal the ACA. That's what we're going to talk about today in a roundtable of Politico reporters. And just to underscore how big an election this is, how big the stakes are, the fate of the House and the Senate will be decided on Tuesday. 36 states are holding governor elections, but we're going to start our look in California with Proposition 8, a ballot measure that would cap dialysis clinics' profits and has already been opposed by $111 million in industry spending, the most ever in history for a ballot measure. Here's a listen at some of the ads running for and against Proposition 8. Dialysis corporations make a killing, driving up insurance rates while patients report blood stains and cockroaches in their clinics. Prop 8 ensures vulnerable patients don't get ripped off. The American Nurses Association California opposes Prop 8 because it hurts patients. Emergency room physicians oppose Prop 8. It'll force vulnerable dialysis patients into already overcrowded emergency rooms. To explain that, we have Victoria Colliver on the line from Oakland, our California reporter. Vicki, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Vicki, you wrote this week about the dialysis industry's record spending to block the proposition. What are they so scared of? It's kind of amazing that this dialysis industry, which is kind of a niche industry in the overall healthcare sector, is spending this much money. But really what it comes down to is a, it's a battle of wills between SEIU, the union, and the, um, the major, mostly for-profit dialysis industries. The union's been trying to negotiate uh, negotiate contracts for several years. They've been going at the um, dialysis clinics through trying to pass different legislation. They haven't done that, so now they're going straight to the voters. And obviously, um, this amount of spending is showing just how much the dialysis industry hates this, this measure. They don't want it to spread to other states and how deep their pockets are. Michael Hiltzig in the Los Angeles Times noted that the two biggest players in California, DeVita and, and Fresenius Medical Care, Fresenius. My, Fresenius, that their California revenue alone was $3 billion a year. So any effort to cut back on their revenues and profits, which really have boomed in the wake of the ACA, protecting patients with pre-existing conditions and then leading to dialysis patients having to get covered, that's what they're so worried about, right? That that even spending $100 million on this measure will pay off if they can keep those billions of dollars in revenues protected. Exactly. They have about 70% of the market share in California. And, um, the, you know, the industry was also fighting back uh, a measure that got to the California governor's desk that um, also would have affected their profits. It was basically a, uh, it's a complicated thing, but it was, it would have limited third-party payments, and third-party payers have 
come into this industry because dialysis is just so expensive. It's there to help people pay for their premiums, but they, this whole scheme has been accused of patient steering, so there was a bill to try to um, uh, curb that, and the industry went after that as well, and the go- governor vetoed it. So they came pretty close, and so they don't want to have another, and here they have another battle on their, hand, uh, battle on their hands in the ballot measure. This is something that I talked about a lot with Obama officials two years ago who were worried about those third-party payers steering these patients who may not have needed services but but profiting off of them and profiting the dialysis clinics. I'm curious, Vicki, because you've covered California for years. There was a ballot measure two years ago around pharma, and the pharma mm-hmm. industry really rose up to fight that. How does that pharma battle compare and perhaps explain what we're seeing now? Well, this is surpass that in spending, at least on that one side. Um, they've, like I said, it's kind of mind-boggling to think that the dialysis industry has now outspent pharma. And that bill two years ago, it, um, it would have uh, prohibited state agencies from spending more than what the VA spends on drugs. So pharma industry was clearly doesn't want that to happen. So they were going all out, spending all this money, um, and, and that's the same playbook as what the dialysis industry is doing here. There was actually two other attempts um, on the dialysis side uh, this year to have similar ballot measures in Arizona and Ohio. And the Ohio one got thrown out by the state uh, Supreme Court over um, irregularities in uh, the signature gathering process. Um, and the Arizona one was dropped by the union early on. But it's clear that this is an effort that the union is trying to spread to other states, and the dialysis industry doesn't want that to happen. And to be clear, in that pharma battle two years ago, the pharma industry won, which is really revealing in a progressive state like California that industry can win on these measures. So, Vicki, I'm curious, for this year's fight over the dialysis measure, will the industry win again, or do the unions have a chance at getting this measure through? Well, I think that the battle two years ago does show that um, spending has an effect. I mean, the industry in both cases outspent the opponents like five to one or more than that. Um, And, you know, we're here in California, it's just blanketing the airwaves. Like I was at the gym the other day and there was like 10 screens in front of me and four of them had Prop 8 ads on them. And most of them are saying no on Prop 8. And I really do think that what um, the polling is a little bit unclear. The, the two years ago, the ballot, it, it, was, it was fairly close. Um, but this year, I, I, re, I think that the problem is when there's a complicated issue like this, when voters don't necessarily have that much connection to the dialysis industry, and they're being pummeled with saying, vote no, if you disconnect me from my dialysis, um, uh, I will die. That's it's a, it's a, basically a lot of fear tactics that the measure it's unlikely to pass, but we'll see. I mean, it's, it's, there's been a lot of efforts on both sides. And Pulse readers can stay tuned to our coverage of California, thanks to Vicki, to see what happens next week and what the implications would be. Vicki, thanks so much for joining Pulse Check. Thank you. We're now going to move from California's ballot measure to some of the other ballot measures in state races around the nation. And to do that review, I'm pleased to be joined by two of my colleagues. First, Paul Demko, our insurance reporter just back from a trip to Idaho and Washington State. Hi, Dan. And Adam Kankren, our do-it-all reporter, who's also back from a trip to Ohio. Hey, Dan. Good to be here. 
All three of us have gotten outside the Beltway in recent weeks. I was in Oklahoma and Kansas. And one of the big stories in this election is the potential expansion of Medicaid, particularly in four rural states, Utah, Idaho, uh, Nebraska, and Montana's voting on a measure that could sustain that expansion. Paul, you were just in Idaho. What is the state of the Medicaid expansion debate there? Well, I think, um, you know, there was a campaign that was launched in northern Idaho that managed to overcome really difficult uh, rules around ballot initiatives in Idaho. And I think once they got it on the ballot, there's kind of widespread belief that um, there's a lot of momentum for passage. Um, and I'll point to a couple things. The polling data is kind of dicey, um, but you know there was one poll over the summer that showed 70% support for expanding Medicaid, which is kind of stunning for such a conservative state. And then, you know, just this week, uh, the longtime governor, a Republican, Butch Otter, came out um, and backed Proposition 2, the Medicaid expansion initiative. So that seems another sign that this thing has good momentum. Though Otter is leaving office and his possible successor could be Brad Little. Where, where does Brad Little, Republican, stand on Medicaid? And that's interesting, too. Little has not decided how he will vote. Um, I interviewed him while I was out there and he said, you know, I, I vote on everything on the ballot. I need to make up my mind and I will announce how I'm going to vote before election day. But so far he has not done that. Um, so there's still a chance that he could he could back Proposition 2 as well. There is an expectation from a lot of folks that this ballot measure in, in Idaho, Nebraska, Utah, wherever that if voters vote it through, voila, Medicaid expansion. But we know from, say, Maine, Maine voters voted for Medicaid expansion. Paula Page blocked it. State legislatures could make this very difficult. So, Paul, how much weight should we be putting on the ballot measure? Yeah, I mean, Idaho is a, is a good example on that front, too. I mean, for years, there's been sort of legislative efforts to come up with a quote-unquote Idaho solution to sort of not entirely embrace Obamacare, but come up with some kind of plan to uh, help people who are in sort of the coverage gap where they can't get Medicaid and they can't get uh, ACA subsidies. And those efforts have always failed. The legislature has been not been willing to back them. And the legislature in Idaho is like stunningly Republican. It's like, I think there's 105 seats and 88 of them are Republicans. So there's no guarantee that um, that they will fund provide the funding and will implement this. I will say that Brad Little has been very clear that he would respect the will of the people and he would attempt to implement it if it is passed. Beyond these ballot measures, there are competitive governor's races in more than a half dozen states that are currently controlled by Republicans. I'm thinking of Florida, Georgia, Kansas, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Wisconsin. Our colleague Alice Olstein, who couldn't be here today, but she has this great story from her trip down to Georgia. You'll find a, a link to that in the show notes. Adam, you've been covering this national fight over Medicaid expansion. How likely is it for Medicaid expansion in some of those states that I just mentioned? Well, it's, it's getting harder nationwide to argue against. So if you remember back when Obamacare first passed, the Republican line was, well, we're not going to expand because we don't trust the government to follow through on their end. And, and at the time, and still is, the deal is that the government will, the federal government will overwhelmingly fund the cost of the Medicaid expansion, uh, and a state would, would only have to pay a fraction. Well, now we are, what, eight years uh, out, and it's 
increasingly hard to make that argument, not just because it's a Republican administration now, but because we're seeing the Medicaid expansion work so well and people like it so much uh, in the places that have expanded. So I'll just reference Ohio because I was just there. You look at the polling, 75 percent of the the public, of the voting public, is in favor of keeping Medicaid expansion. That's bipartisan. Both candidates for governor have said they'll keep Medicaid expansion. So when you look at places like Florida, when you look at places like Georgia, the argument is hard to make, especially when there is, in Florida, for example, millions of people who would benefit from this additional health coverage. I want to push back on this because I have talked to Republicans who have said in these states that the argument is, is more in their favor as the ACA coverage expansion funding has been dialed back somewhat. So the federal match under the ACA was initially 100%. And over the years, as it's progressed, that has been ratcheted down and the state has had to pick up more and more of the tab. It is still financially beneficial in many states to expand coverage because of all this assistance. But the total spending, and Republicans can point to this, has tended to, one, outpace estimates, and two, the government, federal government, is chipping in less and less. That That's a good point. I, I think on... on on the voting side, there's maybe less of a awareness or really, um, you know, caring about ultimately what it what it costs. Um, but that's a good point. And I think that's why you see in some red states trying to negotiate with the federal government. Well, can we can we expand to 100 percent of poverty instead of 138 percent of poverty? Uh, what can we do that will constrain costs, but also you know, allow more people to get health care. And, and, and that's really on the federal level kind of a question that's not not yet resolved. Um, the Obama administration, for, for you know, reasons that they thought would undermine the ACA, said, we don't want to let these states partially expand. The Trump administration now feels the same way, but for the opposite reason, it's because they don't want to encourage other states to, to expand Medicaid and further entrench the Affordable Care Act. So just to clarify that point, the Trump administration doesn't want to back partial Medicaid expansion because they, they don't want to see any expansion at all. Exactly. Not today. And and there there are differing opinions within the administration about that. But so far, those kinds of partial expansions haven't gotten a green light. And I just want to point out one number in terms of the scope of potential Medicaid expansion between ballot referendums and gubernatorial contests. Yesterday, Avalier Health came out with analysis showing that up to 2.7 million people could become eligible for Medicaid, which is a stunning expansion uh, of one of you know Obamacare's key provisions under this administration that is so hostile to the law. Idaho, I think, is on the low end of that with 60,000 people. Well, 60,000 is the number that you typically hear. Avalier's uh, figure was higher. They said it was around 100,000. So I'm not clear exactly what the discrepancy there is. But either way, this could be a health care election, not just from the campaigns that we're seeing, but the true impact. One point that both of you made that I want to want to really drill down on, because I think it gets overlooked a lot in the national coverage, the role of the state legislature. Paul, you mentioned Idaho, which is dominated by Republicans in the state legislature. Adam, you were talking about Florida and Andrew Gillum, the the possible next governor, a Democrat who's had a lead in the polls and has campaigned on Medicaid expansion. He'd be going up against a legislature that stymied Rick Scott and and his efforts as a Republican governor to pass Medicaid expansion through. Now, it is possible that a blue wave overall in the nation could lead to changes in the legislature as well. But that's that's not guaranteed, and these legislatures could make things harder. Well, I would I, I think I think Virginia is a salient example there. I mean, the House was dead set 
against Medicaid expansion for years in Virginia. And then we saw a wave election where they came, I think, within one seat of losing control of the House, and they reversed course and and, and backed expansion. It, it was as close as you could come to losing the House. The name had to be picked out of a hat, or not a hat, a bottle, That's uh, right. to decide who was going to be leading the House. And the state Senate stayed led by Republicans, but because of that wave election, created the momentum for them to get to a, a compromise deal. Yes. So I think I think state lawmakers, much more so than members of Congress, are very responsive to uh, that, the, the voices of their constituents and what they're seeing um, among the electorate. So I think, you know, you might see a change in some of these even Republican-led legislatures depending on how this election goes. And, and I'd be curious, and maybe, Dan, you have some insight on this. I'd be curious, you know, to what extent the Trump administration allowing states to add on work requirements, allowing states to do conservative things with their Medicaid expansion, to what extent that makes, you know, expanding more palatable or, or, or more likely in, in, in red states. I think Virginia is a perfect example of that. We had Alfonso Lopez, the Democrat uh, whip in the House of Delegates there, on this podcast a number of months ago. And Virginia came to a compromise where there were some work requirements for the Medicaid expansion. And what, what Lopez said was, look, I'd rather get some uh, if that isn't going to be all, that's fine. That's still better than nothing. And that does seem to be a template for what we might see in, in Florida and some of these other states. When I was traveling around Kansas and Oklahoma, this was a question I, I asked some state legislators there there too. And what's interesting is state legislatures there are, are not going to be led by Democrats. There's even a joke in Kansas that the two parties are uh, moderate Republicans and, and very conservative Republicans. But there's a chance that uh, Laura Kelly, who's running against Chris Kobach, could win the the governorship. She's a Democrat kind of in the mold of Kathleen Sebelius, who uh, was Kansas governor a number of years ago. And I sat down with um, Susan Kincannon. She's a state rep there who had led the fight as a Republican for Medicaid expansion a few years ago, though she's worried that their their opportunity has passed, that the window has moved on because of groups backed by the Koch brothers and others that primaried out some of these moderate Republicans. And if Chris Kobach wins, then Medicaid expansion is going to be that much harder. Here, here's a clip from my conversation with Susan. It was about a month and a half ago in Kansas. If we have a governor that supports Medicaid expansion, we would only need 63 votes and 21 in the Senate. Uh, and that's, that's easy to get to. But several of the people who voted for expansion um, in uh, 17 were defeated this year in their primaries. You're talking about Republicans. Republican, moderate Republicans. Were primaried out partly yeah. because of their Medicaid expansion support? Yes, yeah. And you faced a primary challenge as well. Historically, you didn't have challenges on, on the way to office in this right. past session you did. Yeah. Or this past yeah. election you did. Yeah, yeah. I And even if we do have an opponent in the rural area, everyone's kind of friendly to each other, and uh, it, we don't have real ugly campaigns. But this was ugly. Uh, the um, Americans for Prosperity was involved in the Kansas Chamber, and they uh, th they don't appreciate my stand on Medicaid expansion, and so went went after me. Uh, spent a lot of money in my my little district, and um, uh, I I won anyway. And just to underline the point, Kincannon again, a Republican, a moderate Republican, was punished for her role in trying to get Medicaid expansion, losing committee seat, and then being challenged by. Uh, conservative groups like Koch brother backed organizations. Let's move from that, from state level races 
to the races that we're watching around the country for the House, for the Senate, and how the campaign rhetoric has been influenced by health care. Paul, you were out in Washington state where you shadowed Representative Kathy McMorris Rogers, the number four Republican in the House, very senior. What did you learn from following her on the trail? Well, I spent about two hours uh, with her knocking on doors in her district in Spokane. And one thing that is striking is she doesn't really bring up the Affordable Care Act at all um, in talking with voters and sort of efforts to repeal it that were such a bedrock of you know previous GOP campaigns in past cycles. So that's sort of just conspicuously missing. Did, did people ask her and say, Representative, I want to know about the ACA? Or was it just more her dodging... Uh, inserting it in the conversation. You no, know, people did not really bring it up. People brought up their very personal concerns. Like one person did raise, you know, that his wife had $700 per month premiums. Um, you know, another person uh, brought up, you know, concerned about solvency of Medicare. Um, another was concerned about long-term care for her mother. So that's why I think that's a lot of why healthcare is such a resonant issue. It hits people in a very personal way. So that's what people were bringing up at the doors. Is there any message from McMorris Rogers that she's trying to lean on to win in this election where Republicans really are on on the defensive around the country? I think it's two twofold. One is insisting that she is adamant that she will protect people with pre-existing conditions and that any sort of future repeal bill that Republicans get behind will have um, strong protections for people with pre-existing conditions. So that insistence is one. And then I think the second is sort of um, accusing her Democratic challenger, Lisa Brown, of distorting her record and fear-mongering. And that's kind of the second piece of it. I mean, the problem is, you know, the American Health Care Act, most health care experts will tell you, did not was a significant blow to those protections for uh, pre-existing conditions that were part of the ACA. And the American Health Care Act, for listeners who might not remember, was the House bill that went through a year and a half ago in, in May 2017 to strike down the ACA, and McMorris Rogers voted for that. Exactly. And the other problem that Republicans are, are dealing with is the Trump administration's decision to back this Texas lawsuit that could dismantle those protections. And so there's just, you know, evidence that um, that they have not been um, protective of, of those of pre-existing conditions that they have to deal with. And I'll, I'll say one more thing that you're seeing from Republicans. I heard this from the, the state rep- party chair in Washington, and that's warning that, that Lisa Brown and other Democrats want a government takeover of the health care system and raising fears about what that would mean for people. So that's another thing where, where they're trying to be on the offensive. So for all of Republicans' protests that Democrats are distorting their votes to repeal the ACA, Republicans have also distorted very much what Democrats are going to do. There are lots of Democrats who don't support Medicare for all, for instance, and Republicans are claiming that they do uh, and, and making predictions on what that would mean for the health care system. There has been a strain of, of story on the left that Republicans are lying, that we can't trust them at all on health care. Story that went up from Ezra Klein at Vox, a very Voxy story uh, just on Wednesday. Quote, Republicans used to have a health care plan. Now all they have are lies. Adam Cancran, is that true? Is is the Republican health care strategy just a lie about the ACA? Let's, let's see how much hot water I can get in here. Uh, I think that it's partially true. 
I think that depending on what candidate you're talking about, what race, the position is anywhere from misleading to blatantly outright false. So, so I'll give you an example on the extreme end. Uh, Martha McSally, running for Senate in Arizona, uh, has an ad out that says she will fight to force health insurers to cover pre-existing conditions. Now, that's the fight that was settled in 2010 by the Affordable Care Act. And also, she voted for the American Health Care Act, which would have undermined pre-existing conditions, and famously, right before the vote, told the rest of the Republican conference, let's get this effing thing done. So that's about as clear of a track record of, of you know, voting for something that would have uh, not only not forced insurers to cover pre-existing conditions, but undermined the existing ones. So that's, you know, you can say that's, that's pretty far on the spectrum toward false. There are other things where, look, you know, ads are always going to be this kind of game of generalities. Republicans saying, I will fight to protect pre-existing conditions, uh, it, it's, it's at odds with their track record, right? But what do you define as pre-existing conditions? How do you do it? That's such a generality that you can make the kind of technical argument that, yeah, I'll, I'll vote to protect pre-existing conditions because I want to require insurers to cover everybody. It doesn't mean you can, the insurers have to cover every condition, every treatment, but that's within the realm of, of being able to say that's, that's what you vote to protect. So it's a little bit more nuanced, I think, than, than these articles have maybe made it sound. Uh, but no, there are, it, it has been a complete reversal of the party's position from a year and a half ago. I remember someone making the good point. It's hard to know what's actually in someone's heart when Republicans say we want to protect pre-existing conditions. Maybe that is a sincerely held belief, but the track record would suggest not, not so much. Paul, where do we stand looking at those ads that are being run on healthcare around the country? I mean, healthcare. I, you know, Wesleyan Media Project. I think said recently that this is clear. This is the healthcare election. I mean, healthcare is dominating the airwaves. Um, they just came out with some new data that went from Labor Day through October 25th, and it showed that 45 percent of ads in House and Senate races are focused on healthcare, which is staggering. And for the for the Democrats, those numbers are even higher. Um, for for House Democrats, 59 percent of ads. Are focused on healthcare, um, so it is clearly, um, and and that far exceeds any other issue: taxes, immigration, anything. So this is it, it exceeds Trump. It exceeds yes. running against opposition to President Trump. Absolutely. So you know, Democrats clearly feel that this is a, a, an issue that they can win on in a way they haven't since 2010, and uh, Republicans are, I think, very concerned about it. There was a poll recently in the Washington Post, uh, ABC News, Washington Post poll. Democrats had an 18-point advantage on who voters trust more on health care. That is the highest since before the Affordable Care Act. Drilling down into specific races where Democrats are running on health care, where Republicans are on the defensive, are there any candidates that you are watching closely because the election will have influence on who's making health care laws where it would tell us more about the state of the issue? Sure. Well, I, I guess I'll give you, um, you know, one race in particular that I'm looking at, is, and it's, it's kind of a bellwether to me. Uh, what is worse, you know, opposing the Affordable Care Act at this point for a Republican in a toss-up district or wanting to go the extra mile and, and be for Medicare for all? And that's uh, the, the race in Texas for Pete Sessions' uh, seat. He's the, the head of the, the, the House Budget Committee. Uh, he's a pretty high-ranking Republican, and ex except for his district, over these past couple of years, just got redistricted, redrawn, uh, where it incorporated a lot more Democratic uh, voters. So he's running a, 
pretty neck and neck race against uh, Colin Allred, who is out there as a progressive and in favor of Medicare for all. And what it's really become is a litmus test for, you know, how angry are voters about the last couple years versus how fearful are voters about what Democrats might do if they take power in 2018, 2020, and, and beyond. Um, the interesting thing is, the last time I talked to Pete Sessions, I was asking him kind of about this and how this is playing. And <laughs> we had a good long talk about it. He was talking about some of the do- problems with Obamacare and how you know it's difficult to get coverage in network. It's, things are extremely expensive in his district. And not once did he mention the Republican plans that they tried to pass. Not once did he mention the, the American Health Care Act. What he did was reference his own plan, which uh, I think was titled the greatest health care plan ever or something like that, uh, as kind of evidence for how he has vowed to protect pre-existing conditions and would continue to. So it's, it's been kind of an interesting case study in, uh, you know, can a Republican uh, run and win in that kind of a toss-up district? And I just want to make one clarification. You said that Sessions chairs the Budget Committee. I think he actually chairs the Rules Committee yes. in the House, yes. which is which is also important. I mean, every piece of legislation has to flow through the Rules Committee uh, and get ruled on. Yes, absolutely. Any other races that you're watching, Paul? Well, I would mention one in New Jersey that's a very tight race, and that's uh, Tom MacArthur, who played a uh, a, a crucial role in sort of reviving the American Health Care Act after it looked like it was about to go down in flames. He kind of brokered a deal that brought that that brought things back together. And so he's very much as, as associated with that legislation and is, uh, you know, facing a, a very tough opponent in Andy Kim. Um, so that's one that I think uh, is, is worth watching. And to underline this point, MacArthur, who made the deal with the Freedom Caucus and Mark Meadows, MacArthur, this moderate Republican from New Jersey, uh, really was was at the forefront of resurrecting that fight and standing with Trump at the Rose Garden and then was pilloried at town halls. A number of these videos went viral. I remember sharing one of a man in, in I think, surgical scrubs berating MacArthur <laughs> for his vote and saying that he had put his family at risk. Andy Kim, meanwhile, an Obama administration alum, exactly. who really is able to cloak himself in that Obama expansion argument. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I don't think you've seen ads from MacArthur uh, ha- that have anything to do with uh, the American Health Care Act. He's more been questioning um, the resume of his challenger and going after him with attack ads. I'll, I'll maybe add one more. Um, and this is kind of maybe cuts against the grain. Uh, Dan Donovan in, in New York is running for re-election in what's been a relatively uh, safe district in Staten Island. Um, but it's a moderate district. And if you remember, Dan Donovan was one of the few who voted both against the health care bill and the tax bill. Uh, and for me, it's kind of a test of, you know, can someone who is Republican in this very kind of partisan time uh, take his own, you know, essentially carve out his own independent path is, you know, be against these things that were the core of the Republican agenda. And then also, you know, beat back kind of a democratic democratic wave in a year that doesn't look so great. So far, he's up, uh, I believe, four or five points. It looks like, you know, he's, he's, he's got a slight lead. But it's, it's a very narrow local argument that he's been making. It's, I voted against the health law because it wouldn't protect our hospitals. It's, it's kind of a really interesting race that's maybe flown below the radar. And can someone with such a well-crafted name, an alliterative name like yeah. Dan Donovan, win in an election? That's something I'll be <laughs> well, watching. Well, he's got an excellent Staten Island accent to, to, sure, to help That's what the, the race will hinge on right there. 
Well, thinking of alliterative, uh, alliterative people in power, Heidi Heitkamp, who was on this podcast a few weeks ago, is in the fight of her life after eking out victory six years ago in, in the North Dakota Senate race is is trying to hold on in the face of uh, Kevin Kramer, the Republican representative. And healthcare really has been a closing argument in that in that campaign. I spoke with Heitkamp's office uh, about a week ago when they were putting out yet another healthcare ad, and they said to me, "Look, we think this is our winning issue." Amid everything else, and some of it is the tariffs and the farming too, which plays well there. The Trump's uh, tariff moves and how that may have hurt American farming, but they are really leaning in on healthcare because they see that as, as Paul was making the point, the tangible issue that people can latch onto. Though she never uses the words Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, it's it's much more generic around protecting pre-existing uh, patients with pre-existing conditions. Yeah, I think McCaskill is another uh, really good example of that where she's really leaning in hard on pre-existing conditions and and she has the advantage of her uh, challenger, the attorney general, being a party to that Texas lawsuit that I referenced earlier. And that's Claire McCaskill, Democrat in Missouri, running against Josh Hawley, the Republican attorney general there. Adams talked about her, covered some of that, as well as the West Virginia case of Manchin, Joe Manchin, Democrat running against an attorney general, Morrissey, who's suing to get rid of the, the ACA. And I think, I think the point you make is, is, is a really salient one, is, is, and this is true for, I think, McCaskill and, and especially Manchin, is the pre-existing condition issue, uh, and relatedly the, the, the lawsuit in Texas, has given these candidates a way to talk about the Affordable Care Act in these deep red states without ever having to say the name of the health care law. It's been a, a, a way to talk about health care without you know, having to step on that, that kind of a, you know, Obamacare button. Let's go to the last question. There are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of races, counting state legislatures, to be decided on Tuesday. What is the race that you are watching? Adam Cancrin. Well, I'll, I'll take a second, I guess, to plug Ohio again, because I, I think it's a really interesting state with a lot of uh, political dynamics. You have to remember, this is a state that went twice for Obama and then voted for Trump in 2016 in, in kind of a, an indicator of, uh, of the election that we saw. Um, and that's a, a neck and neck race between Richard Cordray, who's a Democrat. He's the former CFPB head in the Obama administration. Consumer right? Financial Protection Bureau. Exactly. Uh, and he's running against Mike DeWine, who is the current attorney general, the Republican attorney general. And, and this is, again, a race that's become very much about health care. It is, you know, who will protect the Affordable Care Act and pre-existing conditions and also who will fight the opioid epidemic that, you know, regardless of national trends, continues to spiral in, in Ohio. Uh, and so, you know, it's been become very much a, uh, a, a debate over, over who will do a better job there. Um, and at this point, you know, it's probably about neck and neck, about even race. I love that you said you were going to plug Ohio, but then did not plug your story. <laughs> you wrote a story about the opioid policy I did. that they're I fighting did. about. I did. Well, and this is, I, I should have mentioned it, this is one of the, the, main, the main points is there's a, a ballot initiative out there uh, that would take a pretty radical approach to fighting the opioid crisis. Uh, and effectively, it would downgrade all drug possession crimes to misdemeanors. So you couldn't get a felony charge from just straight drug possession. And it would prohibit jail time for all but the most frequent offenders. And, and the idea is that we should be jailing fewer people for using drugs and instead funneling them into treatment. Uh, this is something that Richard Cordray has embraced. He is one of only two Democrats running statewide who endorses this. And, and there's been a lot of criticism over this initiative because, number one, it would be a constitutional amendment. So once it's in there, no way to modify it. It would go over the state legislature's head. 
Uh, and two, it's very generally written. There's a lot of questions about interpretation and what the impact would be, both for the opioid crisis and from a criminal justice standpoint. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you look at polling and uh, among the voting public, it's relatively popular. Last poll I saw was 48% in favor. Um, and, and, a, and a big chunk, 20%, still undecided. And, and the main reason in talking to people in, in various parts of, of southern Ohio and, and, and western Ohio uh, is that people are just fed up. You know, they see all these deaths. They see the fentanyl kind of flooding through Ohio. And they say, look, the, the normal course of action isn't working. Our legislature, they feel, is moving too fast. There's very little help coming down from the federal government, despite... Trump promising that he would, you know, quote, end this the opioid crisis. And so there's very much a feeling like, hey, this is a new experiment. Why not give it a try? It can't get much worse than this. I thought your story was very interesting and, and very balanced in that there's a push to decriminalize some of these drug crimes. And yet there are real concerns from public health groups. It's also a very interesting story given the history in America of criminalizing cocaine and other drugs used by poor African Americans. And now that it has reached white suburbia and, and rural whites, well, maybe now we won't de- we won't punish uh, as, as severely for this, this is something that, that a lot of people brought up uh, at the time. And you look at, you know, the kind of voting splits, and obviously this is favored by younger voters and minority voters. And um, usually there's kind of a sheepish acknowledgement of that of, yes, you know, this is obviously a different uh, attitude that we're taking, but at least oh, it's I'm, a better I'm, one. I'm surprised know? that people have that much self-awareness. Listeners can find a link to Adam's story in the show notes. Paul, the race that you are watching next week. I am going to go back to the Medicaid ballot referendums. And uh, I think what's going on in Montana is really interesting. Um, that is a bit of an outlier in that the the referendum is on whether to continue with expansion. But what's fascinating is the 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 money that's flowing into that contest. Now, they the the referendum would increase tobacco taxes by about $2 a pack on uh, cigarettes and uh the tobacco companies mostly Altria are pumping money into uh, fighting that referendum and i mean it's kind of funny to think about in the context of California cuz it's only 17 million dollars but in Montana that's the most expensive ballot referendum in the state's history. Um, And I'm relying here on some reporting by Montana Public Radio, so kudos to them. Um, So it'll be interesting, really interesting to see how how that plays out and whether that money is able to uh, defeat that referendum. There are multiple races I'm I'm watching, both as in my role as a healthcare reporter, as well as the guy who's going to be writing the newsletter, Politico Pulse, that night. So we, we've already got a few flagged. I would say that any person who has appeared on this podcast, I'm invested in that person's outcome. <laughs> I will be watching to see what happens to Senator Heitkamp. And now you've heard from Representative Con Cannon in Kansas. So Chris Kobach and Laura Kelly fighting over the governorship there. I'll be watching that too as kind of a quieter Medicaid expansion fight. But the race that that has really captured my attention is the one with Lauren Underwood in Illinois. Again, someone who came on Pulse Check. This is, in in many respects, such an embodiment of the healthcare issue. Underwood is is a young woman who said she was motivated to run against Randy Holtgren, relatively popular, moderate Republican who's represented his district for now four terms. This is a long-term Republican district. Denny Hastert, the former speaker, was from uh, Illinois 14. And yet Underwood has mounted a serious challenge. She's a nurse. She's a former Obama administration official at Ixchik who helped implement the ACA, and she's just running on health care 
over and over again. And there is a story by a, a little-known reporter named Jennifer Habercorn. Jen Habercorn. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, appearing in, in a publication called the Los Angeles Times, um, which I... I suppose is reputable, but but we'll include a link to, to that. <laughs> it came up uh, this week, and, and Jen followed uh, Lauren around. And if it's not obvious, we know Jen Habercorn very well as our former political colleague. And we'll leave it there. Paul, Adam, thanks so much for joining Pulse Check this week. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having us. And that's it for this week's episode. My thanks also to Mikael Rodriguez and Dave Shaw for producing. Listeners, if you heard us reference a poll or a story that we worked on, check the show notes. You'll find a link there. You'll find a new episode of Pulse Check in your podcast player next week.